3: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from
1: HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Front. So, Holly, how often have you heard somebody say history is written by the victors? I can't even count how many times I've said it. I know we've said it a lot (laughs) on, on this podcast. Uh, Today we're going to talk about a pretty giant exception to that conventional wisdom, which is the Pueblo Revolt of 1680. And in this revolt, Native American peoples, who are collectively known as the Pueblos, rose up in unison against Spanish colonists and missionaries who had started settling the area at the turn of the 17th century. These settlers were Catholic and had begun systematically converting the Native population and had also forbidden the practice of the Pueblo's traditional religions. So on August 10th, 1680, the Pueblos in multiple villages rose up simultaneously against the settlers. They threw off the colonial government and lived outside of Spanish rule for the next 12 years. This was probably the most successful indigenous uprisings in North American history. But because the Pueblos were not keeping written records of their history at the time, it was a largely oral tradition. Most of the history on this one was actually written by the losing side. Where we do have written records of the Native American point of view, it's in the form of testimony that was given orally by Pueblo peoples and written down by Spanish priests. So it's clearly not an unbiased account uh, where we do have the Native American perspective on things. This is what we're going to talk about today. This huge revolt of which we have very little record. Of the victor side. Yeah. Uh.
5: So for background, before the arrival of European settlers, the part of the world that's now northern Mexico and the southwestern United States was home to several tribes of Native peoples who fit very broadly into two groups. And one group was the more mobile hunter-gatherer peoples, and that included the Navajo and the Apache. And the other group included the Native Americans who were living in established permanent settlements that Spanish colonists dubbed Pueblos.
1: So Pueblos are communal living situations with terraces and flat roofs. They are built around a central court and above an underground ceremonial chamber called a kiva. Once the Spanish coined the term Pueblos, the various peoples who lived in them came to be collectively known as the Pueblo Indians. And the Pueblo peoples are most
5: likely descended from the Anasazi, and they include the Hopi and the Zuni, among others. Pueblos do still exist today, and one of them, the Acoma Pueblo, is believed to be the oldest continually inhabited place in the United States. Uh, people have lived in it since about the year 1200.
1: So although the Pueblo peoples lived in similar looking structures, this wasn't and isn't one homogenous group of people. The Pueblos spoke seven different languages in the 1600s, although some may have spoken Spanish as well. Each individual Pueblo governed itself and had its own customs and its own cultural nuances.
5: Spain made its way to this part of the world with the intent to conquer land and convert the people living there to Christianity. And last but not least on their agenda was finding a bunch of treasure. And some of that would fold back in to fund their first and second agendas.
1: Right. And in a lot of views, the, the primary agenda was really treasure. Um <laughs> but the treasure there was in some some components of it like the the treasure had an end besides just treasure in itself right? right and that was conquering and converting Spanish settlers made contact with the pueblo peoples in the early 1500s when Marcos de Niza who was a Franciscan friar claimed the whole region for Spain the infamous conquistador Coronado also made his way through in 1540 And conquistador Juan de Onate made a voyage there with 400 settlers in 1598. At that point, he established New Mexico as a Spanish colony, and that's really when Spanish colonization of the area started in earnest.
5: And the whole vast hordes of treasure idea didn't pan out for New Mexico, and Spain wanted to abandon the area. But the Franciscans made a case for their mission work, being far too advanced to just come to an end abruptly. So they continued on with the aim of converting the indigenous population and ministering to the ones that they had already been successful in converting.
1: In addition to trying to convert the indigenous population to Catholicism, the Spanish authorities also forbade traditional religious practices. So when they arrived in a Pueblo village, the Spanish would start by destroying the Kiva, uh, which was used for for religious and, and cultural ceremonies, uh, and also was kind of like a gathering place. Um, sometimes they would build the church directly over the Kiva site. The Spanish uh, also destroyed masks and other items that were associated with kachinas, and these were spirit beings worshipped in traditional P- Pueblo religions. The Native Americans who resisted the Spanish were often subject to imprisonment and torture.
5: And in a recurring theme regarding the colonization of the Americas, the settlers introduced measles, smallpox, and typhus. Up to 80% of the Pueblo population actually died in the years after first contact due to disease.
1: Yeah. But this was not a wholly a one-sided thing. There was there were also diseases brought back to Europe from the colonies, yeah. but not not nearly with the lethal uh, ramifications. As happened in the Americas. 80%. A lot. Huge. Yeah. Uh, The Spanish also implemented taxation in their colonies. And the rates of taxation were so high that over about a decade, the Spanish went from asking the Pueblos for food to help them get started with their colony to instead the Pueblos asking the Spanish for food that had been taxed away from them.
5: And to add to all of this... A drought started in 1666 that lasted for four years. Before the arrival of the Spanish, the Pueblo people survived drought by keeping stockpiles of food and trading with one another. It was very cooperative. But the Spanish had taxed them so heavily that no one had a stockpile, and trade among the Pueblos was prohibited. Raids by the Apaches on the remaining meager stores made things even harder. So basically all of their resources were stripped from them.
1: Right. And then there was an epidemic of an unknown and deeply deadly disease in 1671.
5: And all of this, of course, had a measurable effect on the Pueblo population. Over the 75 years between the real start of Spanish settlement and the revolt, the number of Pueblos dropped from about 100 to about 40. Existing today are about 20.
1: In the minds of many Pueblo peoples at the time, life was getting harder and harder, specifically because they were not being allowed to perform their religious observances. Uh, like a, a Western idea of this might be that God was exacting vengeance because he was not being worshipped enough. Right. But this was more a worldview that, that those observances were crucial to maintaining their quality of life uh, and the way that the world was supposed to work. And without those observances going on, that things were going off the rails.
5: Well, yeah, their entire culture had been upended and most of their traditions stripped away. Right. So, yes, that will pretty much ruin your life. <laughs> your structure has been completely taken away. Uh, Spanish authorities cracked down harder on dissent after the Acoma Revolt in 1599. And in this revolt, the Acoma Pueblo attacked a party of Spanish people who asked them for supplies.
0: Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app,
6: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver.
5: So uh, Spanish authorities had cracked down harder on dissent after an event that actually took place sometime before in 1599, and that was the Acoma Revolt. And in this revolt, the Acoma Pueblo attacked a party of Spanish people who had asked them for supplies. The Spanish then burned down the town and massacred every male living there who was over the age of 25. And in the aftermath of this revolt, floggings, public executions, and sentences of slavery became more common. So after that whole thing had happened, the Spanish basically, their approach to anything was going to be swift and cruel. And pretty decisive. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, So uh, over the development of. You know, the the diseases and taxation that we just talked about. Other revolts were also going on. But because the Pueblos were so spread out, most of them were really too small to be effective. And in some cases, Native Americans who were loyal to the Spanish had tipped them off to what was happening. So there was resistance going on through this whole time, but it wasn't really strong enough to gain a foothold. It was a little piecemeal. Yeah, Uh, In 1675, Spanish authorities rounded up
5: 47 Pueblo religious leaders and convicted them of sorcery and conspiring to rebel. These leaders were beaten publicly and they were sentenced to slavery. Four were sentenced to execution, though one of them committed suicide rather than be executed.
1: One of the imprisoned holy leaders was a man named Pope, and he was from San Juan Pueblo.
5: Pope and the other leaders were released that same year. Uh, Pope went to the northernmost Pueblo, Taos Pueblo. There, he reported being visited by three spirits who gave him a prophecy. Abundance would return to the Pueblos if they purged their world of Spaniards.
1: So the Spanish described this event as having had a conversation with the devil. And most of the Spanish writing about the revolt from the time characterizes it as the work of the devil, not as a result of Spanish oppression or of the Pueblo's grievances against the Spanish colonists.
5: So over a period of years, Pope started to organize the Pueblo people who were living in villages that spanned up and down the Rio Grande Valley, and they sprawled out over more than 300 miles of territory from east to west.
1: So to address the language barrier that we referenced earlier, uh, which was one of the things that had prevented all these different Pueblos from uniting in the past, Pope gave each of the villages a knotted cord, which he delivered to them using runners and the villages were supposed to unknot one knot from the cord every day. And on the day that the last knot was untied, that would be the day that everyone was to rise up against the Spanish.
5: And also given to the runners were pieces of deer skin that were marked with
1: pictograms. Pope rehearsed their meaning with the runners before they left. So the plan was to simultaneously attack the Spanish in all these different villages using weapons that people had stockpiled and hidden. Uh, and then to destroy the churches and kill the priests, and then to kill the Spanish or drive them out of their towns. From there, the Pueblos planned to converge to turn their attention to the Spanish capital at Santa Fe.
5: Two of the runners that Pope sent out were captured, giving the Spanish advance warning of what was going to happen. Additional runners were dispatched to tell all the Pueblos to move the revolution earlier. News didn't make it to all the outlying Pueblos in time, and a few Pueblos appeared to have declined to participate in the plan.
1: Yes, there are some descriptions of this that make it sound as though this was a completely unanimous action on the part of the Pueblos. And for a lot of reasons, it wasn't. Some of them seem not to have gotten the news from the runners in time. Others seem to have consciously made the decision... Uh, for whatever reason, uh, either because they were sympathetic to the Spanish or were uh, allied with the Spanish, uh, decided not to, to attack the people who were living there at that point. So regardless of all of that, on August 10, 1680, many of the Pueblos, along with allies from the Apache and the Navajo, attacked in more than 20 villages. Together, they killed 401 Spanish soldiers and civilians, including 21 Franciscan priests. And that was about two-thirds of the ecclesiastical force living in New Mexico at the time. We have absolutely no casualty count on the Native American side. We have no idea how many Pueblos died uh, during the fighting.
5: At least one priest, who was Father Juan Grayrobe at Zuni Pueblo, reportedly survived by putting aside Catholicism and taking up Pueblo practices, and he eventually married a Zuni wife. There's a lot that's actually unclear about this story, though, since it's pieced together from multiple testimonies that were given orally by Native Americans and then written down by Spanish priests. So the veracity of any element of it Is a little bit questionable.
1: Yeah, we've sort of established that this is probably what happened, um, later in a part that we will get to in a bit. The Spanish did return and apparently found this particularly, this particular Pueblo still practicing a lot of elements of Catholic religion, um, led by Father Juan Greyrobe, who had kind of assimilated into the Pueblo culture.
5: Fascinating. That could be a podcast in and of itself, I would imagine. If we
1: had better records. (laughs) If we had enough records to do that, which we really don't. Uh, Once the fighting was done in the villages, about 2,500 warriors attacked the colonial headquarters at Santa Fe. And survivors in uh, Santa Fe and from the surrounding villages all fled to the governor's palace, and there uh, they were laid siege to. Uh, Eventually, the Pueblos cut off the water supply, Um, Another group of refugees fled to the Isleta Pueblo, which was 70 miles to the south and apparently had not taken part in the fighting. The lieutenant governor was there with a group of survivors. And
5: eventually on August 21st, the governor decided to abandon New Mexico. He and the survivors who had taken refuge in Santa Fe managed to flee down the Rio Grande. And exactly whether this is because they were allowed to go or were just uh, strong enough presence not to be messed with is still a matter of some debate. Uh, the lieutenant governor decided to abandon New Mexico as well.
1: Yeah, we pretty much know that they all left and the Native Americans allowed them to leave. But we have no record of the rationale for uh, why everyone was allowed to leave at this point. Yeah, if they
5: cut a deal or if they just were strong enough that they were like, we're, we're just gonna let this happen.
1: Yeah. Along with some of the Pueblo peoples who were loyal to Spain, everyone went to El Paso del Norte, which today is Juarez, Mexico. And for 12 years, the Pueblos were actually free from colonial rule. And before we talk about, um, sort of how this all played out for the next 12 years, how it affected life in New Mexico for the next while, well, let's take a moment.
4: I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver.
1: So after the revolt, Pope toured the Pueblos and instructed people to really throw off all Spanish influence. Many people underwent a ritual bathing that was meant to wash away their baptism. Christian marriages were also voided until a traditional Pueblo ceremony could be performed.
5: And the Pueblos burned down villages that the Spanish had built, including Spanish-built Pueblos that the native peoples had been living in. They basically wanted to eradicate anything the Spanish had touched.
1: Yeah, yeah. They burned down mission churches and smashed the bells. They whipped statues, gouged out the eyes of religious paintings. But this really didn't happen in every single Pueblo. This is another thing that a lot of times in modern accounts, you will see this as a universal thing that happened in every single Pueblo to the same extent. Uh, But there's really a lot of variety in exactly how much each Pueblo village did or did not reject Catholic influence at this point.
5: And some of their tribe, some of the tribes actually moved their pueblos to more defensible vantage points to better defend themselves in case the Spanish returned.
1: Many of the new pueblos that were built after the revolt were built immediately adjacent to other villages that dated back to the 12th or 13th century. So it sort of seems as though that in addition to going back to their traditional ways, they were also going back to the places where their ancestors had lived.
5: But Spanish influence was not entirely destroyed. Some Spanish introductions to Pueblo culture, uh, including raising cattle and sheep, had become part of the way of life there. And Pope decreed that people should go back to planting corn exclusively. But some continued to plant wheat and barley, which had also been introduced by the Spanish.
1: There were also Pueblo people at this point who identified as Christians and who didn't want to give up their religion. Uh, these people would salvage and hide what they could or incorporate Christian themes into their traditional spiritual practice. So you can see some kind of merging of the two influences in the archaeological record in some places.
5: And the Spanish uh, started to attempt to retake the Pueblo area in 1681. There were skirmishes and sieges that went on for years.
1: Pope died in 1688. And there really wasn't another charismatic leader to take his place and try to unite all the people of the different Pueblos. And even before his death, his leadership had really weakened. He wound up dying in disgrace. Um, there's some suggestion in the testimonies that w- was taken orally from the Pueblo peoples that there were Pueblos that went along with Pope because they were scared of him and not because they actually wanted to rebel. It, it's kind of hard to to figure out whether that is really what people thought or whether that is sort of an addition um of the Spanish translators. but the fact that he did die in pretty much not a state of respect or reverence right. makes it seem like maybe there was
5: there's some merit to that Yes, yeah,
1: some merit to that part of it. Also, the sort of back to the old ways that he was advocating did seem like in sometimes that it was sort of back to the old ways. As envisioned by Pope. some of the Pueblos that were rebuilt after the revolt have more in common with Pope's particular people than with the Pueblos that they were replacing.
5: And weakened by years of fighting and a loss of a central leader to coordinate their efforts, the Pueblo peoples once again fell to the Spanish. And that was in 1692.
1: At this point, though, the evangelical policy of the Catholic Church did become somewhat less oppressive in terms of religious expression. So there were still missions and churches being built. Missionaries still tried to convert people, but they didn't really stand in the way of the Pueblo people's free religious expression at that point. So while there was still a whole colonial system going on, the the Pueblo peoples did have more of an ability to, to carry on their their historical traditions and their spiritual traditions.
5: But unfortunately, that did not stop things from uh, being bloody in the reconquest process. So while there were some peaceful surrenders, in other places the Spanish actually went house to house and burned people in their homes.
1: That's pretty bloody all around. Uh huh. Historical archaeologist Matthew J. Liebman frames this whole revolt as a revolution and not a revolt. And he draws some parallels between it and the American Revolution. Basically, in both cases, there were farming people who were unhappy with the leadership, who organized at night to rise up and get rid of an oppressive colonial government that they were unhappy living under.
5: And today, there are about 75,000 people of Pueblo descent still living.
1: Yes, we're not talking about people who existed only in the past. As we said earlier, uh, one of the pueblos is one of the most or one of the oldest continually inhabited places in the United States.
5: Yeah. So the culture endures to some degree. It
1: does. Um, It endures. And a lot of the pueblos that still exist are still inhabited in a way that's similar to how uh, they were inhabited at this point in history. Um, A lot of them are places that people can visit if they are interested in learning about. There are uh, a lot of resources online to kind of get a sense of what the etiquette is of going uh, like what people can, what visitors can and cannot witness and can and cannot do and participate in. Um, We can add
5: that to our list of history podcast road trips.
1: Yes, the Pueblo trip.
5: That would be very cool.
1: There's a statue of Pope in the Statuary Hall in the United States Capitol. It's one of the seven Native Americans who were represented in the Statuary Hall. And as we've talked about there are nuances to this story. So, you know, for that reason, it was a pretty controversial addition to the statuary hall. It was carved by Cliff Fragua of Jemez Pueblo, and it depicts him. He's uh, he's holding the knotted cord that was used to help time everything correctly. Which um, is really
5: a pretty ingenious timing device. Yeah. Simple, I, but effective.
1: I, uh, I also watched a, a video that pointed out that it's kind of weird where it's positioned because where where the statue of Pope is, you can see over his shoulder this um, this big mural of Columbus, quote, discovering America. Oh, <laughs> uh, but because of the way the statue happens to be positioned, he's, his face is kind of turned away from that.
5: Interesting.
1: Yeah. I, I don't think that was a deliberate... It, I think it just worked out that way. Um, Fascinating but yeah do you also have some listener mail for I'd, us to enjoy do you have some listener mail this listener mail uh, is from Hallie and it's about our Laura Ingalls Wilder podcast um, she starts by wishing us happy holidays we are just back from these holidays yes I
5: was here for most of them but. yes
1: I say we it was really me I was gone far away and, and so it is I. <laughs> it is our first recording session post holiday yeah so happy holidays to everyone belatedly Thank you so much for your recent podcast on Laura Ingalls Wilder in the long winter of 1880 to 1881, uh, which I am eagerly awaiting. I think she had not heard that one yet when she wrote this letter. I am a huge Laura Ingalls Wilder fan. I was introduced to her books at age four, and my senior history thesis topic this past year was inspired by Laura's stories. I'm one of those people who has not yet gone on a Laura Ingalls Wilder road trip, but would absolutely love to. I have been to three sides plus Almanzo's New York farm on different occasions, though. Considering how much there is to say about Laura, I think you did a great job condensing it to 40 minutes. Just one correction. Almanzo's name was pronounced like it was spelled, not Almanzo. So that I have no idea where I picked up the pronunciation Almanzo. (laughs) Uh, I don't either, but I do. The, I mean, if you had woken me from a dead sleep and said, how do you pronounce this? I would have said Almanzo. Yeah, I think maybe that was how they said it on the TV show. Perhaps I could not confirm that before we came in here today. But maybe. so my bad. I don't know where I picked up the wrong pronunciation for his name, but apparently I did. Um, then she says, oh, that would explain why she called him manly. It
5: does. It sounds it a lot more <laughs> sense. It's less of
1: a jump. Yes. Uh, I'd like to suggest a related podcast topic, Women in the Homestead Act. You mentioned Eliza Jane's homestead. There's so much to talk about on the subject of women, particularly single women, and the Homestead Act. This is what I actually focused my thesis on. There is really interesting struggle and in gender slash power play that went on with allowing single women to file. As you mentioned in the podcast, women were confined largely to the house, but filing a homestead claim meant working the land. And although the government allowed women to do this, the language that was used to talk about homesteading completely left out women. Because of this, you got some women using masculine language to talk about themselves. I don't know if you remember the term batching from The Long Winter to describe how Almanzo and Royal were living. But some women, namely one who called herself Bachelor Bess, started using words like that to refer to females. E.J. is also fascinating, as she had trouble proving up her claim and wrote a really long letter regarding her experience during those five years. Carrie, too, was a homestead, a homesteader, though she did it after the five-year law was changed. I could go on and on about this. Perhaps a collaboration with Stuff Mom Never Told You. I also think a podcast on Rose would be wonderful with her reporting, libertarianism, fascination with Albania, and difficult relationship with her mother. Lastly, I wanted to draw your attention to a few things you might find interesting in case you didn't come across them in your research. There is a research organization devoted to Laura Ingalls Wilder, the Laura Ingalls Wilder Legacy and Research Association. At their first conference, a physics teacher presented on the science behind Cap and Almanzo's Winter Trek in the Long Winter. You can see many land patents on the website of the Bureau of Land Management, including the timber claim patents for Eliza Jane and Royal Wilder. Oh, and remember the Bloody Benders episode from last year? Laura, on several occasions, claimed that her father had run-ins with the family, but historians generally agree that this embellishment was suggested by Rose to add more excitement to her mother's childhood. Okay. Then Holly gives us a completely unnecessary apology for how long this email is. Uh, this is so full of good This stuff. is so full of good stuff. Thank you so much, Holly. Um, the Homestead Act... Is there's so many layers and nuances to the Homestead Act that we definitely did not scratch the surface of in that particular episode. Um, I don't. We have maybe talked about this in our our prior podcast, pop stuff. But one of my favorite reality TV shows Uh was called Frontier House. Oh yeah, Uh, and it was about three families who were sort of sent to to basically pretend that they're going to be on the frontier through the winter and, and some historians who came in to say whether they could survive or not. And one of the families is an interracial couple who at the time period, uh, that would have been a, a potential option for a, a mixed or an interracial couple to be able to make a life for themselves without so much interference from the rules of society around them who would have said that their relationship was not okay. Um, so we have potential opportunities for women, for interracial couples, for other people who were not living in like the social standard that was acceptable at the time. But at the same time, it was a devastating act for the Native American population who were being removed from their homes and put on reservations to make room for the settlers. So, lots of layers to the Homestead Act. It was simultaneously an opportunity and absolutely devastating and horrible. Uh, so thank you, Hallie, for writing us that letter. Yeah. Oh, so good. It is very good. So if
5: you would like to email us and share your thoughts, you can do so at historypodcast at discovery.com. We also have some new ways to connect with us, uh, or old ways with new addresses. You can connect with us on Facebook still, but now we're at facebook.com slash missed in history. Uh, we're still on Twitter at missed in history. We're still on Tumblr at missed And our Pinterest has moved and expanded rather significantly. So you can find us there at pinterest.com slash missed in history.
1: If you would like to learn a little more about what we have talked about today and some of the controversial history of what we've been talking about, you can come to our website, put in the word missionaries in the search bar, and you will find the article, How Missionaries Work. You can learn all about this and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com.
3: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.